Thanks for tuning in to McNamara on Money, a podcast about all things financial. On this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's not the case with callers we may speak to on this show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Listeners to this podcast should consult their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions we might make. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. My name is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to McNamara on Money. Okay, we have a plan today. I always have a plan. My first part of my plan involves having a co-host and sidekick on this show. Justin, are you there? I am here. All righty, folks. We got the old guy and the young guy named McNamara here this morning. And uh, so we, the rough plan is that uh, for the last few shows, I've been having a whole lot of fun kind of touching on different articles and videos from the media with some financial messages that I think would make some sense for a, a good chunk of our listeners. All right, folks, so I'm going to spend the next couple hours. And what's the plan, Justin? Are you being replaced by your sister? Or how's this working now at nine? What's the plan here? I think so, yeah. I think she's yeah. going to, we're going to sub out at nine. Yeah. But right. Should we do full disclosure? We are recording from Alyssa and I are in the same location, and so we're gonna we're gonna switch out halfway through. It's a vacation destination of sorts for us. So we're making family vacay. This we're this making week. this work, and so are and I. One of those things, folks. Yep. All right, so here we go. I've got a bunch of articles that I'm gonna comment on and get Justin's reactions to. And folks, I can pretty much assure you that all, most of these articles have applicability to a whole bunch of people listening to this show wherever you are here it's from my point of view investing in financial stuff a whole lot of it's common sense but you have to do it for a while to get that common sense so anyway all right so here we go justin number one okay this is from go banking rates i picked this up on the yahoo finance site which i like to read a lot and go banking rates is that's the name of the website here yeah yeah i want to be sure i give proper credit for this stuff but okay so this is i'm this is i'm gonna read this verbatim here okay so we don't make sure we don't offend anybody warren buffett dash 12 things poor people waste money on all okay. right How's that for a lead-in, huh? <laughs> I'm not going to do a, do a little bit of the reading here. Okay, so this is cool. And folks, Warren Buffett, I read this morning, he's the sixth richest guy on the planet, by the way, with $117 billion to his name. Go figure. Anyway, okay, number one on the list, neglecting personal development. Uh, is this financial advice? Probably. According to Buffett, the best investment one can make is in one's self. Enhancing skills and education can boost earning potential significantly. Knowledge and abilities are assets that no one can take away from you. We could probably just end the show right on that one, Justin. Just play music <laughs> for the next hour and 50 minutes, don't you think? Let's hope not. It's an interesting piece of advice. Get the most out of yourself and your life here. All right, number two, relying on credit cards. Now I'm reading, credit cards can be convenient, but high interest rates can quickly overshadow any benefits if you don't pay the full balance monthly. Buffett advises against needless spending that could lead to credit card debt. 
All right. Yeah. Let's I think. Go ahead. On so on that subject, recent interest rate changes have made have made sort of comparisons between credit cards. I know this is a a different a different topic, but just on credit cards in general, right? When we sit down with a client, we are talking about what's your what's your debt situation, what's your asset situation. Going back a few years, you might have seen a credit card with uh, maybe it was fifteen percent, maybe it was twelve percent annual interest rates, and then when compared to other options, right? If someone gets themselves in in, in trouble with a credit card, they say, oh, I have this balance of whatever the number is, $20,000. And then this is my, uh, these are my other assets. It used to be maybe a little bit closer on what you might do to get rid of that credit card. I know this is not a necessarily a, a suggestion about, this is like avoid credit cards in general, which we certainly, yeah. <laughs> I think, would sign off on. Uh, but if you do have a credit card balance, the penalty for it now with the recent interest rate changes is so stark that it's, I think it's changed some of our math with some of our clients in those situations now. It used to be, oh, if you're paying 12% on your credit cards or you have maybe you have 0% interest for a while and then there's then you're up at 15% per year, whatever the numbers are. Those numbers are significantly higher now, right? There's really not a whole lot of chance that your portfolio is going to out-earn your 22% credit card rate. And so it may be, maybe there's a difference now in how you attack that. And, oh, I, I have to hold this credit card in debt for three years because that's as fast as I can pay it off. Maybe now that math has changed a little bit with, oh, okay, now maybe a portfolio distribution is a better idea given even if there is taxes and penalties involved because the penalties for holding credit card debt now are so high. I agree. They're higher than before, but they've always yeah. been high regardless of what the rate well, yeah. is. That's right. Always, folks. And my comment, and you can quote me on this, you've heard it before, is that you should be able to pay off your credit card balance every month. And maybe I'll give you a pass and say within three months if you bought something and paid it down. But basically, if if you can't pay off your credit card balance to zero in a three-month period of time, my comment is you shouldn't have bought the stuff that you bought and did what you did given the circumstances. I suppose I could launch into a tirade about marketing and in this country we want to have the black card and we want to have it all we want to have it now and it is convenient to just whip out that piece of plastic and make a charge but folks dangerous stuff moral of the story is okay that uh, a credit card is just a convenient thing that you can hopefully pay off in a very short period of time and not let it build up just when i skip on to the next one why don't you do a quick Google search of the average credit card debt, okay, or something like that, while I go to the next one, just to make that point. Anyway, relying on credit cards, please don't, folks. Make it zero every month. Your life will be a lot better, I think, over the long run. Okay, you're also going to get a chuckle out of this one, my son. This is from Warren Buffett now. Okay. Fre- frequenting bars and pubs, okay? Ah, <laughs> uh uh-uh. Spending on social activities like drinking at bars can add up. Opting for more affordable social gatherings like home get-togethers can help save significantly. Wow. I didn't know. I didn't realize Warren was into was so deep into personal finance here. It doesn't doesn't seem like something he'd need to worry about. He's a role model, and I think he takes that pretty seriously for people who wanting to get rich is one thing. Wanting to live a nice life to the fullest and not go into debt and shoot yourself in the foot that's another thing from my point of view. But anyway, so did you get that credit card debt yet? What, what are you looking at? Two thousand two was seventy of so it's the let's see let's just lending twenty two right. 
Oh, what did I say? Two? 2002? Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. 2022, $7,279. Unpaid average of unpaid balances. Right. Yeah, so that's per, probably. Per person or per household, by the way. I don't. Jeez, I don't know. You're asking. Hey, this is important stuff. Okay. $7,000 and change. I'll bet that's a per household number, which is still a scary number when you're yep. the average balance. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to get that square. No? Okay. I don't have that number. Yeah. It just, it doesn't say specifically, but yeah, all right. so over I think seven, the point is made. Yeah, let's assume it's a household. Over $7,000 per household is the average balance. A whole lot of people are doing something wrong if that's the case. So just as simple as that. All right. Yeah, that's probably $1,400 a year-ish at 20% interest. That's a lot of money. Geez, you can do a lot of things with $1,400. You can buy a lot of drinks at bars. Yeah. <laughs> all right, moving right along here, Okay. <laughs> Chasing the latest technology. This is a guy after my own heart. Okay, so here we go. New gadgets may be tempting, but often last year's model serves just as well. Buffett himself has a history of sticking to functional rather than flashy tech. It's important to assess if the latest upgrades genuinely provide added value for the price. Don't we need to get a phone every two or three years now because it's out of date or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, but they still make calls. I just kind of wondered how that goes sometimes. That's true. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, this has been, yeah, this is, for as long as I've been alive, this has been a, this has been a thing where it's great to talk about the new model, but usually it's, if you waited a year or two, you didn't lose much in the way of functionality and you saved a whole heck of a lot of money. Yeah, I just, it's, yeah, we live in that kind of a world where you got to have the latest and greatest, and I'm sorry. I don't think Buffett got a cell phone until about four years ago, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but anyway, bottom line is chasing the latest and greatest technology. Yep, could be mighty expensive. Maybe that's money that should go in your 401k or your college fund, folks. Just one of those things to think about. <laughs> okay, this is the, la- oh, it, this gets, no, this is interesting. Overspending on clothes. Huh? <laughs> Buffett, along with other billionaires, leans towards simplicity in his wardrobe, choosing classic, durable clothes over flashy, expensive brands can result in significant savings. Not a problem of mine, probably. How about you? What's your take on that, my son? I mean, yeah, I think certainly depending on what your walk of life is, you want to have quality clothes and look nice, but you certainly can overdo it on the clothes side. It's not, it's not one of my vices personally, so I don't, I won't speak too much to it and probably couldn't tell you how much exactly overspending on clothes meant dollars wise, but yeah, so maybe I don't have great expertise on that one, dad. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, if we were on a TV show, we might have to pay more attention to stuff like that anyway, but but, on the radio, (laughs) make it more affordable, but one of those things. All right. Now we're getting into the serious. This is one of my favorite perks in the financial world. Buying buying new cars. Cars are notorious for their rapid depreciation. Buffett recommends buying pre-owned cars and holding onto them for as long as they're reliable instead of falling for the allure of new models. Okay. Okay. You want to comment on that before I start ranting or what? No. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I did buy a new car. I think I bought two new cars in a row after going used for a while, so maybe I'm not the best. I think this gap has closed a bit with the increase in used car prices. I think that cat got out of the bag, and I think it's narrowed just a bit. But yeah, hey, people pay for, for looking good. 
As we know, people, they also pay for the convenience of having your new car probably not break down, at least for a while. There's certainly some pros to having a new car, but yeah, I, I understand. A good, not a well-loved used car, probably still your bet, bet, fi- best bet financially. Yeah, I'd agree with that. By the way, if you buy a new car and drive it for 10 years, that's cool. By the way, you drove that, that last one you had for quite a while, right? How many years? I do try to. I think I get yeah. seven years out of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but by the way, folks, we, we do a lot of retirement planning for our clients, and pricing in cars in retirement is something nobody thinks about till you need one sort of a thing. But it's a pretty significant cost, and it gets even more costly when you're retired, folks. Uh, it's pretty simple. Most people are overcarred, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, you look at the, the reliability. I don't know. The cars are so well made these days that they would probably last eight or ten years with just decent care on average. They're nothing like when I was growing up in terms of breaking down and things. How many people listen to this? How often is your car broken down if it's a newer model and you've driven it for a few years? And the answer is pro- probably not a lot, relatively speaking. But yeah, cars are a biggie when it comes to planning for retirement, folks. And uh, if you've been leasing a car every three years or buying a new one every three or four or five and we know people that do that well as long as you can afford it you're doing everything else right in your life we're good with that but maybe there's a way to save a few bucks and get that college fund built up or that retirement fund built up given the circumstances this is even more stark with depending on what kind of car you're driving to right if you are in the luxury car market new i think is a much different price point than used right i think i would although i don't know maybe you would answer better than that i've never owned an official luxury car dad i've had a couple of them and i got a little tired of them honestly i'm driving a plain old honda pickup truck right now and i love it as a matter of fact all right a few more tidbits here unused gym memberships Yep. What's your take on that? I do my own gym, but what's your take on that? Any, I think anything that's subscription-based is now. We all hear ads on the radio now for credit cards and various financial services that are watching your monthly subscriptions. So this just goes into that bucket. Oh, I signed up to pay for this monthly, and now I don't use it anymore, but I forgot to cancel it. So I, the gym membership certainly in that category. I think as someone who attends my, goes to my gym I would say at least maybe less in the summer because I get to get outside to exercise. But I'm there at least two times a week, I'd say, on average over the course of the year. And I'd say worth it. But yeah, obviously, if you're not going, anything you're paying for and not using, it's pretty easy to attack that one, right? By the way, did you peek in my notes before you went into that question? Why? Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be. Because the next one is unnecessary subscription service. Well, if you had prepped me on this, maybe I wouldn't have jumped ahead on you. No, but I think that's great Okay, that you went right ahead there. Yeah, so think about the subscriptions that you have and how much you use them. There's a difference. Okay, you know, the cost or the price of something is one thing. What it's worth to you and getting your value out of it, that's another. And yeah, and then last, mine, oh, here we go. Over-reliance on skincare products. <laughs> I'm not sure if I should touch that and just move right along. Okay, how about regular? Oh, the last two or three are pretty good. Regular nights out. While socializing is essential, frequent nights out can be a significant expense. Opting for budget-friendly alternatives like home-cooked meals and movie nights can cut costs considerably. By the way, and probably a few pounds as well when I think about socializing. A whole lot of us tend to socialize with meals, and sometimes I worry about that. It's hard to be social and not go out for a meal. Yeah, I understand. 
Yeah, yeah but, hey, but then one of either you or one of your or someone in your social group ends up cleaning up, and they don't. No one wants that, Dad. No one wants to yeah, clean up yeah. after a dinner party. Well, yeah, you got a point there. <laughs> Let's see here. Okay, I think we got probably like a minute or two, so let's see how this is going to work here. Gambling. That's pretty easy. Uh, While gambling might seem like a shortcut to wealth, Buffett emphasizes the importance of understanding the odds. He he urges people to make financial decisions that favor their long-term wealth accumulation, not momentary thrills. I'll leave that one alone. And by the way, smoking, beyond its health implications, is a costly habit. Quitting can lead to a significant boost in your personal budget. And by the way, so those are them. And as a hint for the break, which we're coming on very quickly here, I got one more Buffett article, and it goes to one of my favorite things. TMH. Too much house. Folks, I think it's a good time for taking a break. One minute. Oh, in that case, any summaries, my son, on anything that Warren Buffett just said? No, I would say that probably the, I think the, I guess maybe if I had to, this is just off the top of my head here, the most important of those would be the subscriptions, right? I just, paying for stuff that you don't need is very obvious. I don't think most people end up on credit, in credit card debt or maybe necessarily bad reasons. A lot of people are in there for an emergency. Yeah, uh, but yeah, watch. There are plenty of services out there to track that stuff for you. A lot of them are free. You can get like a mint.com, sign up, and, and watch your spending that way. When it comes to securing your financial future, trust matters. That's why McNamara Financial, a family-owned company, is here for you. As a family-owned company, we understand the importance of your financial well-being. That's why our team of expert financial advisors is committed to your success. At McNamara Financial, we take your trust seriously. That's why all our financial advisors are fiduciaries and certified financial planners, putting your best interests first. With our team of dedicated professionals, you can rest assured that you're receiving top-notch expertise tailored to your unique goals. Don't leave your financial future to chance. Trust McNamara Financial, where family values meet financial expertise. Visit our website or call us to schedule a consultation today. McNamara Financial, securing your financial future one step at a time. We're back. My name is Mike McNamara. This is McNamara on Money. And my business partner and son, Justin, is my co-host this morning. And we're talking about various and sundry financial insights that'll hopefully be worth something to most of the folks listening to this show here. All right. So, Justin, you still there? Still here. That's a good thing. Okay. So, this is I found this on Yahoo Finance from some place called Benzinga, B-E-N-Z-I-N-G-A. Don't ask me. And by the way, the gal who wrote this, Janine Mancini. Anyway, here's the article. Warren Buffett's $31,500 house is now worth $1.44 million. But he says he would have made far more money by renting instead. Okay? Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to touch on a couple pieces of this article. First of all, 
Dubbed the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett is renowned for his simple and frugal lifestyle. Despite being the sixth richest person globally, with a net worth estimated at 100 and I'm rounding $18 billion, Buffett continues to live in the same modest home in Omaha that he purchased in 1958 for just $31,500. Adjusted for inflation, that amount today would be approximately 328,000. Okay, and by the way, the home is worth a million, so I guess it's a good investment to buy a home. That's the subject of this year. Okay, Buffett has consistently ranked the purchase of his home as the third best investment ever made behind only his two wedding rings by the way, which I thought was cool. (laughs) And anyway, I'm going to skip down and read the important stuff here, okay? This is Warren Buffett does a letter to his shareholders every year. That's a pretty famous kind of a thing. We see it all. In 2010, I'm going to quote exactly from the 2010 shareholders report. Home ownership makes sense for most Americans. All things considered, The third best investment I ever made was the purchase of my home, although I would have made far more money had I instead rented and used the purchase money to buy stocks. That's not my point, folks. Buffett goes on to warn that buying a house can turn into a nightmare if the buyer overspends and stretches beyond their financial means. This is the point, folks. When a buyer takes on more debt than they can comfortably manage, it can lead to financial difficulties and potentially even foreclosure. He also points out that lenders sometimes with the backing of the government guarantees can facilitate this situation by extending credit to buyers who may not be fully qualified or financially stable. This can create a false sense of security and entice buyers to take on more debt than they can handle, which can be detrimental in the long run. It's easy to get caught up in the excitement of buying a home, but it is important to remember that it is a major financial decision that should not be taken lightly. Rising home prices and recent interest rate hikes have made it increasingly difficult for many individuals to purchase a home, which is one reason people are turning to fractional investing as a way to add to real estate to their portfolios. Okay, I'm done with that. Okay, how about you take on that, my son, before I start ranting again here? Yeah, I guess at the same time, he called his home a great investment and also warned against other people maybe buying homes. It's just a take on live within your means, right? It's not right. Clearly owning a home can be a good investment. I think it's most, I think it's most people's largest asset. If if you just ranked everyone, like your home is probably worth more than your portfolio is for the average person. That said, just over leveraging yourself in any situation is probably not a great idea. So sure, if you buy a huge house and everything goes fine, you make all your payments, maybe you struggle and you could end up wealthier at the end, but you also put yourself at risk of not being able to make the payments, having a foreclosure and then losing the entire asset, right? So it's just, I think it's relatively straightforward personal financial advice is don't overextend yourself in in hopes of being getting super wealthy yeah or just be prepared for the risk of it going wrong yeah and by the way i think a significant portion of americans who own homes have extended themselves with the obligations that they have and i i just think that's something 
we've missed on in terms of trying to be okay in our life and prepare for the future. You have to live in a home and you have to raise your children and your family. All I get that, but um, my, my take is that people who own homes, as long as you're putting sufficient money away for retirement, as long as, okay, you've got college funds building that you can pay for your kids for college, as long as you can pay your mortgage and pay down your college loans, you can live in any kind of house you want. But I think most Americans are overextended in the homes that they own. And I I just, that's, people say you can't lose money on a home, it's an investment that'll make you some money. But I think, I think if I recall, if you look at long-term, like home appreciation, residential, the numbers are like something like five or six percent a year over the long run. That ring a bell? I think I've read that a number of times. That are pretty. I know it's been crazy in the last few years and yeah. going on, but I think if you look at some long-term home numbers, if you look at it as an investment, and I don't think you should. Okay, you're talking about a 5 or a 6 or a 7% return. Now, there's a bunch of people in the last few years that have seen their homes appreciate a lot more than that for whatever's going on, and I get that. But for most people, your home should be a place to live and not an investment. And if you wanted to do the math after you sold your home and made a whole bunch of money, if you actually counted the improvements that you put into that home, and if you actually added in the maintenance up costs that you had in that home, the returns probably aren't as big as they, they seem to be given the circumstances. So I think it's just caution is how I would use that. Be very careful about owning a home. And I think just about everybody stretches it. In today's world, I'm not sure if we're paying the price for doing that for a long time because look at the younger generation and the difficulties they're having trying to buy a home right now. It's it's crazy, right? Well, yeah. I mean, our starting from government policy, right? Yeah. Home ownership is incentivized in our country. Yeah. It's part of the American dream. It's it's ingrained in our culture that if you don't own your own home. You're doing you're something not, wrong or you're a bad You're doing something wrong. So we yeah. have that to start. And then we yeah. have the fact that that sort of pushes up home prices and then everyone else sees the fact that oh, a home is a great investment and we we hear that there's we personally know a lot of folks who at least could downsize and we do retirement planning and, and you bought the big house and oh i don't need all this square footage anymore and so i'm going to go sell my nice house in a nice neighborhood and maybe use that to whatever so there's a lot of i think there's a lot of pushing folks into that big house and it's not necessary and not to mention keeping up with the joneses right and it all gets it all snowballs on itself from there if you can avoid that and be be more practical about the whole thing you're probably in a better situation although maybe not you could again you can stretch on a nice home in it if you own it for 30 years and make a great return on it because it's in a great neighborhood or on the water. There are certainly people who win that who win that bet on a fairly regular basis, but there are risks involved. Yeah, it's. I think two other thoughts I have on that is that first, it's like it's not unpatriotic to rent versus own a home. And you're not dumb if you're renting versus owning a home by your choice sort of a thing. I think financially speaking, there are a whole lot of personal financial situations where renting would be a better option than owning, okay? But you don't, but whatever lobby we need for that, it's not as big as the real estate industry lobby in terms of making people feel okay about that sort of a thing. So renting is a perfectly acceptable situation 
for lots of people in lots of different financial circumstances. And it's okay to be that way from my point of view. But the, the other point... I mean, it's just to point out from my own personal life experience, that's rent, it's it certainly is fine. But as a renter, you have, if, let's say someone like me, I have kids. What happens if I'm renting in my neighborhood? Oh, I love the town of Westford. It's great. What happens if I'm renting a home and then that home is sold out from under me? I have to move. I got to change my kids. They're going to go to a different school next year, even if it's not a different town. Maybe it's a yep. different school in town. It gets complicated yeah. being a renter. It's a little bit more of a transient lifestyle, or at least potentially. I think and, I agree. That yeah, would be more yeah. difficult for families, but yeah. single, young, single young people. Sure. single older people who can't mow the lawn people who if you're just starting out in your life okay and even if you're making good money and qualify buying a home maybe you buy a home and three years later a job takes you to another part of the country for a lot more money and by the way maybe real estate went no place during that time or maybe there was a little bit of a downturn in the prices so i'm not bad-mouthing home ownership. I'm suggesting that there are a bunch of other alternatives, okay, and that a lot of people own maybe more home than they can afford, and maybe they won't find that out till later on in life. So the second take I would have on that is the later on in life piece, okay? So the going wisdom is I'll have my very expensive house that's grown a whole lot in value and worth a whole bunch more than I paid for it, and I'll downsize in retirement. I'll take equity out of that home. Part of my retirement nest egg is in my home's equity, and that that's probably not true for a whole bunch of people. Okay, It may well be true for some, but that's probably not true for a whole bunch of people. So now I'm speaking to folks who've been in a home for a long time and now it's worth a lot of money and maybe you're about retired, okay, or thinking about retiring and you've got this house, hopefully, with a mortgage paid off. That's a whole other discussion from my point of view, but well, downsize. Again, Justin, before I go off the edge here, you wanna give me your take on downsizing in terms of the reality versus the dream here? Sure. I think what you mean to say is that most people don't downsize that way. I think our yeah. experience, and I'm not sure that maybe we shouldn't use necessarily our experience as the experience of everyone. We see a whole lot of people, Justin, in a whole lot of circumstances. Yeah, and they say, yeah, yeah. they tend to be in one, in, in sort of a, a relatively mono financial class, though. But yes, most people don't downsize. They don't I don't think the preference for most people is to downsize financially speaking, right? So most most transactions that we see in retirement, you, you'll you sell the home and you'll buy a similarly priced home that, that may be smaller, but with more amenities or in a nicer location or have something to do with some other perks that make it more expensive, even though it may be a smaller place. So I just, I don't think it happens as regularly as most people think or assume. That said, if you needed to do to downsize in order to make your life work, we do see that certainly on occasion. I think the the major risk about favoring real estate, or at least we'll call it a personal residence, over a more diversified portfolio. Right, I'm going to buy a huge house. I'm not going to be able to. Inv- I won't be able to fund my 401k as much as I'd like to, or as maybe as much as I should. But hey, when I retire, I'm going to have this great piece of property, and I'll be able to sell it. You're, the that may very well work. There is a risk in a single trans. There's a single transaction risk to that, right? So if you're if you happen to want to retire and it's a lousy real estate market, we only get one chance to sell that house versus a retirement portfolio. 
then it's, even if you retire into a lousy market, you're not selling the entire portfolio day one of retirement, right? You're taking hopefully a small percentage of it. And if you're in a lousy market, you'll have an opportunity to recover in year two, three, four, five, whenever the recovery comes. But it's just a little bit it's a little bit easier to take from a portfolio than it is your home because you only get that one house sale point. Okay. And let me, that's a good point. Let's talk about the downsizing, whether it's by forced or by choice. I think that's a great differentiator. Okay. Folks, if you get to your retirement and you're forced to downsize, we hope that doesn't happen. It's too late to rethink your life if you're in that situation for whatever reasons, okay? You could have had a lot of money and bought too much house, or you could have had not whatever. That's not the point. The point is that if you're forced to downsize, what you're going to probably end up doing is be in a less desirable home in a less desirable neighborhood or wherever, okay, and not very happy about it. If you had to, if you're in that situation, so let's address the I choose to downsize, folks. And yeah, right, we work with a subset of people who are financially motivated and try to take care of their money because that's why they went to see a financial advisor. So we're all good with that. So for people who are are going to choose, hopefully, to downsize, well, it, it, it usually doesn't work very well. We've, I've been doing this for 42 years and change now, folks, and most of the folks who choose to downsize, find themselves in a situation where they want to buy a smaller but better appointed home that's not much less in cost, if not equal to in cost, or more in cost than what they're selling. That This is a pretty pretty common event, folks, okay? And downside, whatever you sell your larger house for, there's a fairly decent chance that you can't replace that a, by taking a bunch of money off the table for your retirement nest egg and buying something smaller. That, that's just kind of where the math is these days. I mean, don't. how many folks have you seen make out well on that side so far? A few, but yeah, it's, I guess it is, it's fairly rare to see that as a, as a major piece of a retirement plan. And again, that could, I do want to stress that we, we're not working with, we only work with a certain number of people. So with the our experience may not be representative of the population as a whole, but yeah, we see it fairly rarely. Although it's in a lot of cases, in our case, it's by choice, right? I, I don't choose to downsize because I don't have to downsize. Whereas if you're forced into doing it, then it may be a different different situation. Yeah, and by you, the also way- throw, you could also throw in taxes too, right? As of sure. right now, the on a primary residence, right? If we're just talking about buying that big house, you do get a free for a couple of free five hundred thousand dollar primary residence home exclusion from taxes. That works pretty well if it's for for, for let's use Warren Buffett's home. If he's married, what did he buy it for thirty two thousand dollars, and he sells it for a million? Then he has to pay a five hundred thousand dollar capital gain. If you increase the size of that home. It doesn't take long for you to get up over that $500,000. If you buy a $2 million home today, odds are even if you just use regular inflation, you're talking about five or 10 years until you get up over that 500000 in appreciation, and then that transaction is going to be taxable. So just something yeah. to think about, and it doesn't necessarily make it a bad investment, but the more, you know, the, the larger the house is, the less, the less of an impact that $500,000 exclusion is going to have on you, unless they change it, which... I bet you they'll have to eventually, but we'll see. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, by the way, to get back to your, we work with a subset of folks. We probably have a subset of radio listeners here that are proportionally in that same percentage. Oh, yeah. 
okay thing. So I guess the moral of the story is that, okay, if you're going to downsize equal to equal in retirement, then you had better saved a bunch of money someplace else if you're not planning on using the equity in your home to retire. That's the message that I want to get across, folks, okay? What we're seeing, we've seen, I've seen a few clients, I have more older clients than you do, my son, obviously, but I've seen a few older clients buy a more expensive home in retirement. And a couple take out a mortgage sort of a thing. So my point is that, okay, if you choose to downsize in retirement, okay, you may not be happy about the results. And if you're not happy about the results, we hope that you saved a lot of money along the way with regard to financial assets and 401ks and retirement plans, because it might not be the the dream or it might not be the reality that you're happy with given the circumstances. We'd see this from time to time. Anything else on that before we skip along here, my son? Nope. All right. So now, so what's the plan? You're, Alyssa's going to join me after the, the top of the hour here. Is that how it's going to work or what? You got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Listen, this is a big one. I'm going to drop this on you. You ready? Okay. Are you sure. Okay. All You're right. not going to save it for Alyssa? It's a good uh, one. Well, I... <laughs> I probably should, but you'll have to just do the best you can with this, okay? So this is something we don't do very often, by the way. So are you ready for this? Yeah. Top seven reasons Americans hire financial advisors. Okay. Huh? That sound interesting or what? Does? All right. So folks, if you've listened to this radio show for any length of time, you know that we're not exactly blatantly throwing ourselves out in front of you as people who we're not very good at marketing. We do this show. Yep. Hopefully over time, some folks listening to this radio show might give us a call for some help. But we do this show because we think it's important that people get up to speed about finances. And But we're not completely altruistic. We do this as a business decision to grow our business over time. That's no secret. I think we're pretty polite and subtle about it. Would you agree, my son? We're not exactly blazing. I hope, I hope so. But we're yeah, biased. I, you know. We are biased, but <laughs> you certainly are as well. So this is a plug for financial advisors in general, not necessarily just McNamara financial advisors. And the reason I want to spend some time on it is that There's some percentage of Americans that can be comfortable and effective managing their financial affairs, and there's some potential that are not. And I I don't want to get into the arguments about what percentage of people need a financial advisor, okay, versus what percentage of people can do it on their own. Not my job to make some guesses about this, okay? My guess is that there are a bunch of people in this country who need to help need some help with their finances and people like financial advisors and accountants and attorneys they're all in that ballpark when it comes to and insurance folks by the way they're all in that ballpark when it comes to financial advisors so i'm very comfortable talking about why people need financial advisors but not everybody and by the way if you're a do-it-yourself financial person or investor and you're listening to this show hopefully some of the things we've talked about have been helpful but we like you too everybody's got to do their own thing here but anyway Anyway, so I'm going to spend some time, okay, touching on some of the reasons people hire them and for whatever it's worth, I just think it's important that there may be some do-it-yourselfers out there that might be just a bit better off if they work with a professional from time to time. So, did I, am I being polite about that myself? Very polite, so far. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, so let's get going here. Ready? I'm ready. 
top seven reasons and they get i think more important as they go along so i'm going to start with the bottom one and we've only got three or four minutes so Alyssa's going to have to bat after you step out here but anyway so here we go let's see here Two-thirds of American adults in a Northwestern Mutual study released Monday acknowledged that their financial planning needs improvement, including 79% of both Generation Z and Millennials. Respondents said having a financial advisor bolsters confidence, yet only 37% work with one. One factor driving this result could be the current economic landscape. Northwestern Mutual said 18% of survey participants said recent economic uncertainty has led them to either begin working with a financial advisor or plan to do so. Haven't we always had economic uncertainty? Not just today. Hey, I'm, have I been missing something for the last 40 years? Since yeah. I'm sorry, did they say millennials? Was that the specific survey? Okay. Yeah. Gen Z. Anyway, let's get to the... Everyone, to the- everyone's uncertainty come, right? And it's, it always feels yeah. like it's the first time for you, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So this is one of those slideshow things. So I'm just going to hit the seven reasons and you've got a chance to maybe talk about one or two of them, depending on where this goes. Okay. Reason number seven saves me time. Yeah. Okay. That works. By the way. Okay. So let's see. So they break it down in. Yep, they thank you, Tim. They break it down into millennials and generation. I'm not going there. Okay. Uh, let's see. I should say just if we're talking about millennials, yeah. I will say that it's I think there may be a lot of millennials just based on their station in life that would have a hard time finding a financial advisor. It's we live in I guess I should call it an unfortunate world where a lot of folks don't qualify to work with a financial advisor just because of the way the business is structured, right? Yeah. And it's a lot of us manage money for a living, us included. And if you have, if you haven't started investing in earnest, it's it can be hard to find a financial advisor. And so, if we're talking about millennials and only thirty seven percent working with them, that could be part of this, right? So before we yeah. get into all that stuff, I don't know if you want to comment on that. We're, we're right up against it. I think I think that music came early, so I guess let's wrap it up and we can handle the rest after the break. Or you can. Alrighty. <laughs> Sign on, my son. Take we'll care. Be right, we'll be right back, folks.